This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Great, so now we'll hear from Kate from PTV, who will be talking us through experiences um, with improving Flinders Street Station. Thank Looking you. forward to hear this one. <laughs> Thank you Thanks. Hello. Uh, my name is Kathleen Jones, and I am the manager of New Product at Public Transport Victoria. I would like to start by acknowledging the uh, traditional custodial owners of the land on which we meet today, and the elders past and present. Uh, I am quite overwhelmed being here at this user experience conference. I'm a transport planner. And uh, traditionally, transport planning is not much about users, to be honest, sadly. But I am part of this uh, group of transport planners who take what's called a placemaking approach. And I really want to tell this story about placemaking today and how we're applying that down at Flinders Street Station because it really shares a lot of similarities with the work that UX and human-centred designers are doing. And being of that ilk, I think that sort of storytelling is really, really important. So just to start, I want to take a photo of the room. We'll put it on the Twitter, because we are all here working together. Oh. OK. Smile. Beautiful. And my colleague Alexandra is going to tweet that for us. So ostensibly, I am here to talk about the Flinders Street Station upgrade. Uh, this is a $100 million project, state government project, to repair the exterior of the Flinders Street Station admin building and make the station more functional for passengers. Now, this is going to be really disappointing um, from the onset, but I'll do it quickly and early so those people who are disappointed can leave the room, go to a different presentation. I am here to just talk about the passenger-facing elements of this project. Uh, we're partnering with Major Projects Victoria, who are looking after the administration building, uh, repairing it, painting it. This includes the dome and the famous ballroom. I can't talk about those things because it, it's not my uh, remit. So if you're wanting to hear about those things, I'm really sorry. As I said, I won't be offended if you want to leave the room now. Uh, so our, our project is about improving access options uh, to the station revamping the customer experience to make it easier for passengers to know what platform they need to be on and how to get there, as well as identify improvements for the interface with surrounding streets and businesses in the Flinders Street Station precinct. It's a really fun uh, project for a transport nerd like me and also um, someone who just loves cities. Here's the, the old station. Now, as I also said, what I want to get into, first of all, is this idea of placemaking. Uh, and it's kind of... I'm going to start a little bit abstract before we get to the station. But I do think it's really um, powerful to share how this placemaking discipline uh, is so similar to UX and human-centred design. And it's been amazing for me to go into a multidisciplinary team with UX designers and see how our disciplines have been... Uh, developing over time in parallel. So first of all, these are my amazing people, uh, my team. Uh, I work within the product development and innovation team at PTV, and we came into being when my uh, amazing boss, Jordana Blank, decided to bring together 
an economist, who is Nelson on the left, a human-centered designer, Alexandra in the middle, and myself, to see if we could reorientate the way Public Transport Victoria thinks about their services and to really uh, refocus that planning on the human. So as well as drinking UDLs and eating oysters in the street, we have been able to uh, change slowly a little bit the way PTV thinks about transport planning. And for that reason, we've uh, been able to increase our team. And about six months ago, Rebecca, Carolina and Nick joined us. So we're now a little team of seven. One other disappointment for the room, again, <laughs> say it early, <laughs> just get over and done with. Mikey is not our remit. <laughs> uh, I'm aware Andy has left the conference. So, um, anyway. So, yes, we've um, been developing our tools for trying to reorientate PTV onto this more customer, passenger, user-focused approach. Um, I put up customer journey maps that we developed quite early. Um, I'm sure for people in the room, you're probably thinking, oh yeah, show us something amazing, because this is very much bread and butter for you guys. Uh, this is quite revolutionary within the PTV organisation. Um, and in fact, many people still think that having siloed teams thinking about the different elements of the customer experience is okay. So we really are trying to move a, a large beast. And I think for that reason, it's really um, useful to think about urban planning and transport planning over time and how this idea of placemaking, which is quite new, a bit like UX and human-centred design, is um, coming in to challenge a really big beast. So what is placemaking? There's a couple of uh, definitions up on the screen. Uh, in my mind, placemaking is about human experiences of place, humans being part of the creation of places, and that the design of places support community rituals and values. Uh, you can't get away from the fact that placemaking is quite political. Not only did it grow out of community struggle for empowerment within their neighbourhoods, uh, a large part of placemaking is uh, openly working through conflict uh, within place. Uh, and that's a really fascinating part of placemaking that would, would take up another talk. Uh, another part of placemaking, which I won't cover today, is the sort of co-design elements that really come into play within placemaking that, again, share a lot with the practice of UX and human-centred design. But today we're going to talk a bit more about some fundamental placemaking tools, a place wheel, and see how that can be... We've applied that down at Flinders Street Station. So this is my definition of place placemaking and places, that places are a sum of human experience. Uh, I mean this in both the individual and collective sense, and I use a sum intentionally to... Inf to refer to the fluidity of place. So, I mean, placemaking is really what postmodernity did to urban planning. Uh, it really exposed the naivety of mod modernist town planners who proposed that the experience of place was objective or singular, uh, that place should have been or should be experienced as the modernist town planners would intend or impose. So placemaking instead, instead celebrates conflict, diversity, multiplicity, and fluidity. Now, it's a relatively new thing, and it's 
embedded within a rational planning tradition. So if you do town planning, urban planning, transport planning, you go to uni and you learn about this thing called rational planning theory or rational planning models. And it actually dates back to the 5th century BC when the architect and planner Hippodemus was shaping cities with the view that a physically ordered city would ensure rational social order. The position and allocation of certain civic uh, activities was also really important for the state and sovereign for defining what their social values are and imposing those onto the citizenship and, and in fact, defining the citizen. Uh, it's, it's a really fascinating uh, area to study. And it was around before this, but it was at this time that it became very self-referential. And Aristotle's Politics, written just after Hippodemus's time, really explores this theme as a central tenet for defining politics. And it, it's a really interesting space to delve into if you're interested. So over time, this theme has played out in different ways. And we've seen the canons of urban layout manifest in really interesting ways. The Renaissance was obsessed with this business. Uh, the citizens used it uh, to assert their own power. And when I say citizens, very wealthy citizens like the Medici. Uh, and here's an amazing image. It's one of the famous uh, Renaissance paintings, paintings by Raphael, the School of Athens, in which these themes are directly addressed. The French Revolution, and the role of the urban landscape uh, played that, what am I saying? The role that the urban landscape played in enabling that revolution is really interesting. And then we move through to the Industrial Revolution, the precursor for modern urbanity. So modernism is cool, I kind of love it. A lot of great design has come out of the modern era. But also some really rational kind of antiquated or um, aggregate level ideas about human behaviour were, were formed. This is a model which tells us how and why consumers uh, decide how to get around. It's a transportation behaviour model. I have absolutely no idea what it tells you. Um, it was developed in 1976, but it's really, I don't know, well articulates it through some equation why people will choose to ride their bike, walk, catch a train or drive a car. So, hello. <laughs> so enter into this frame a community hero, um, an absolute hero of urbanity with Jane Jacobs there, centre of the screen. Uh, Jane Jacobs was a journalist uh, living in Greenwich Village, New York in the 60s. And she successfully stopped the then mayor of New York bulldozing a large part of Manhattan to build a freeway. Not only is she an urban hero for stopping that project um, and, and decimating a lot of what we understand of the great uh, urban centre, New York, it was also because of her ability to emphasise those dimensions of cities that had become invisible to planners. Uh, planners were focused on national and global economies and how to support those, while Jane Jacobs made people realise that it's really important to focus on the details of how cities are lived, how they're breathed. Um, I'm reminded a lot of Ash's presentation yesterday where the detail is not the detail um, and really getting into those elements of where places are lived. Uh, along with uh, 
a wonderful contemporary, a Jane and a guy called William White, sort of are the pioneers of placemaking and looking at how humans need to be understood within place. So in terms of the Flinders Street Station project, this is a little bit what my team is trying to do. Not a little bit, it is what my team is trying to do. <laughs> uh, rather than looking at the building, uh, we're really interested in the people and, and how they're using the space, what's important to them, how we can support that. And there is two elements. It's a functional space, but it also has a really civic role. So there's a lot of tension and we need to work through those. Now, because I just think this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, um, I'm, I am going to show you a little video. Uh, this was published in 1980 by William Wyatt, who, as I said, was sort of one of the founders of the notions of placemaking. And it explores how this new focus on the human uh, was initially kind of uh, injected into urban planning. So we went to work. We set up cameras for time-lapse coverage of a cross-section uh, of spaces, about 14 plazas and three small parks. But our main technique was simple, direct observation. Uh, we made up maps for each of the spaces, and then we would go around periodically and map where the people sat, what they were doing, what the time of day was, the temperature, and so on. And it doesn't take much longer to do this than to make a simple head count. But as you build up the record, a number of patterns begin to appear. The first thing that strikes you is the extraordinary diversity of activity. Uh, people reading, eating, talking, playing games. The sociability is really rather important. We found that the proportion of people in groups uh, can tell you a number of things. The most used plazas tend to have a higher proportion of people in twos and threes than the less successful ones. But the most sociable plazas also have, in absolute numbers, the greatest number of individuals. A busy place, for some reason, seems to be the most congenial kind of place if you want to be alone or talk, as this man is, to oneself. The number one activity is people looking at other people, but it is a point that is overlooked in many, many designs. Here are the girl watchers. Uh, they are a bit disdainful, uh, sort of looking down their nose as though the girls weren't quite worthy of their talents. But it's all machismo. We have never, ever seen a girl watcher make a pass at a girl. We've seen very few others do that, for that matter. Thank you. So I'm sure this speaks to a lot of people in the room in terms of their practice. And uh, this was the first time we saw it in urban planning, happening such a compelling manner. And it's absolutely a, a beautiful piece of work. It is available online, so um, look for the social life of urban spaces and you'll, you'll find it pretty readily. I really encourage you to watch it. And um, I'm not going to show the whole 59 minutes of it, um, <laughs> but I do think it is worth calling out uh, one of William's observations that people tend to sit where there are places to sit. Of course, very obvious, <laughs> but in fact had been overlooked. And uh, he also calls out the fact that the city at that time was often using de design techniques to stop people from city sitting. And we see this still a lot in terms of public space chair um, seating, um, railing, 
uh, you know, the little bits that they put on edges so people can't skateboard, all of those things. So the power of the obvious um, was something that placemaking brought into the fold and again to this community, remember how powerful that is because until it's observed, it, it doesn't become obvious. So in Melbourne, we've got some really great examples of placemaking and how it's been uh, instated to do quite extensive uh, city shaping pro uh, projects, to make myself sound like a transport bureaucrat there. Um, in 1996, the city of Melbourne started working with Jan Gell, an architect who's really focused on uh, the life between buildings, which is the title of one of his books, and how architecture should be about supporting interactions between people, not just materials and the like. And that program has really seen the city of Melbourne reinvent itself um, and go from being a, a city, which even I'm old enough to remember, kind of shut down at 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon into this 24-7 uh, space and, and a place where anything is possible. So that's just a really great example. I wanted to call out a really positive example before I, I kind of go a bit, bit dark. Um, so my team was brought onto the Flinders Street Station project. Uh, and it was really living in rational planning land. Here is a heat map of the station during the AM peak, and it tells us that the station's really busy, um, and there are a lot of people using it, uh, and we knew that, and it's really important <laughs> to do that. Uh, it's really important to document that. But it wasn't telling us about the psychology of how people were moving through the space while they were making the choices to go into more congested parts of the station than others. Uh, and it wasn't going to help us think about how we could improve the human experience at the station in a way that modified behaviour to even more improve their experience. Uh, by that I mean direct people into parts of the station that weren't overcrowded, that didn't feel really congested, which is a huge pain point for people down at the station. Uh, so, yeah, the people and the psychology were a little bit invisible. And... My next slide um, is just an example of how engineers like to approach projects. This is a project wall, which is an info wall down at the station. It's down at Flint Street Station at the moment. And as the project was being led by architects, they put up this project wall and covered on the only functioning public PowerPoint available at the station, which a lot of people have come to use to charge their mobile devices. We keep talking to them about just cutting a hole in that wall so people can use it. Um, but unfortunately, six months on, that's what it looks like today. It's not funny, but um, it's <laughs> not funny at all. Um, but just again, to speak to the community who I know are, are struggling within uh, bringing the human into this very rationalised um, kind of canons of work. My team, as I said, we're doing a whole lot of uh, human-centred design work, which was great, but we also needed to look at the civic role of the station. So how is it ex uh, experienced within that space and what are the civic demands of the station? Because it's not just about getting on and off a train down at Flinders Street. Uh, in terms of a lot of the wayfinding uh, issues, we have been able to use our user experience design approach and I'm really hoping my team will be able to present some amazing work they've done in the wayfinding um, space at another UX conference. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to get now into what I'm meant to be talking about, uh, which is the user experience approach. Uh, 
the placemaking approach for um, Flinders Street Station. So what we did when we thought, gosh, we've got all these really big civic questions to answer and um, these conflicts between the passenger need and the civic need of Flinders Street. So we borrowed from uh, Projects for Public Spaces, which is an amazing uh, placemaking consultancy and organisation in the UK. Uh, we stole their idea of the place wheel. And the place wheel concept is, is brilliant. It sets at the centre of a successful place four quadrants and states that and shows that a successful place really excels in all four of these areas. And if it's only successful in one, there's probably not a place. Um, so the, the four quadrants are sociability, uses and activities, comfort and image, access and linkages. So Project for Public Spaces would say, if an, a space is only successful in terms of access and linkages, it's probably not a place. It's probably a freeway or railway tracks. It's not a place for people. Um, so they talk about the fact that you really need to bring these four quadrants together. The place wheel is really powerful. Not only does it have these core quadrants in the middle ring, it's got aspirational outcomes. So what types of uh, outcomes should a place aspire to within each of those quadrants? So, for example, in terms of, again, access and linkages, because I'm the transport nerd, um, continuity, proximity, connected, these are the types of outcome aspirations that a place sets for itself in terms of that quadrant. And again, I'm, I keep thinking about Ash's presentation yesterday, which talked about setting emotional requirements. And in a sense, the place will talks about the function requirements of place, but then brings in these emotional requirements in terms of talking about sociability, things like pride, equity, interactive, and also comfort and image, which is safe, um, charming, and, and beautiful things like that. So down at Flinders Street, we've, we've had some really big challenges, even just at the conceptual level. So when we're even just thinking about where can we direct money? What's the most important things to fix? And, and what are some of the challenges? So for access and linkages, I'm going to use those ideas of the place wheel um, to show you how we looked at a huge problem, which is the Elizabeth Street underpass. So the Elizabeth Street underpass, here's a picture of it. Um, as you can see, it's pretty confused, type of place. If anyone's been down there, they'll know it's really crowded. Um, it feels quite hostile to people. And it's got this huge role. It, it, you know, about 80,000 people a day use it to get on and off trains. And then another huge number of people, which we have not been able to find a number for, um, use it to cross from the CBD to the Yarra River. Now, at the moment, it's got a paid area, which is to the left of that photo, from your view. And um, to the right is an unpaid area, which is the public thoroughfare. So this was a great um, moment in uh, concept development. There were lots of opinions in the room about whether we should just gate the whole thing, just get rid of the barrier down the middle, make it a paid space. It's a station space. should just be somewhere for people to get on and off a train. There's a logic in that. Much bigger capacity for station users. Um, clarity, we can get rid of that weird pool fence that's in the middle of that um, subway. Uh, but 
we weren't so sure because we also knew the role of the th- public thoroughfare was huge and uh, to cut that off would actually reorientate the station itself in terms of um, city circulation and the city and its surrounding precincts. So you go back to the um, prime uh, outcome aspirations around continuity um, and uh, stations being you know, seamlessly integrated within public realm. And we knew we couldn't shut it off. That dual activity was really quite important in that space. Um, just t- uh, to, to talk about how we can fix things down there at the moment, um, we can't expand its width. That's what everyone asks, uh, because the two main stormwater drains for the city of Melbourne are on both sides, and if they're not there, the city floods. Um, so it, it is quite a big problem. So the project knows... The project was guided by our principles around placemaking to say you wanted that dual occupancy, and so Western access to Flinders Street Station is probably going to need a, a bigger budget allocation, and so part of the project is looking at other options for Western access and developing a business case. Uh, In terms of some immediate design improvements, we can certainly look at uh, alternatives to pool fencing and how lighting can also improve just the feeling down there and reduce that sense of congestion, as well as a minor entry enhancement at the river end of the subway to enable a redirection of a proportion of people on straight onto platform 10, which will have a real capacity, a positive capacity impact. So another big issue down at the station, which fits into the uses and activity space, is uh, should there be non-station specific functions and activities at the station? Essentially, should you be able to buy coffee at the station? get straight to it. So if you look at uh, uses and activities, it talks about the need for places to be fun, vital, special, real, useful, celebratory, (laughs) um, suitable uh, and sustainable. So initially there was, again, a really big push to just remove anything that wasn't station specific from the site. And this was a big problem. It would certainly help uh, capacity. It would make a really big space. It's a really big space down there. But we wanted to know more and we wanted to use the principles of the place wheel as well as what we know about what our customers want at different um, points in their journey to explore other alternatives. Um, Just because this is a cool photo, that's actually Flinders Street Station Concourse with pretty much nothing in it. So I don't know the year or the source of that, but it has come out through uh, through this project. Um, And it just shows you how much space is down there. Um, So in terms of what the place wheel framework suggests, it does talk to a mixed use. The need for some civic and commercial uh, activities and um, elements within these station environments. An opportunity and a place for... um, Or an opportunity for people to buy a coffee or a bagel or the like while they're waiting for their friends. And another huge part of this um, came into that idea of meeting under the clocks, which uh, sits hand-in-hand with our idea about Flinders Street and how, at the moment, that's sort of a fairly shabby type of experience. And so how do we bring those elements into the station? uh, Interestingly enough, we actually posed um, the 
challenge to our first lot of engineering consultants uh, and ask them how they're going to improve the experience um, of the station as a launching place for someone's experience of Melbourne, which in their lovely engineering minds just thought was really funny and ridiculous. Um, yet that was pretty much what we were tasked with by the government. So um, it's been great to bring in this understanding and, and set those emotional requirements as well as functional requirements. So moving on to something that is quite a, a bit more functional, uh, the station is also looking at changing the lighting down on the platforms. Uh, and this really goes into those sorts of behavioural priming it's, and how people feel and whether there's an impact when you change those sorts of elements. Uh, to begin with, the engineers were just going to roll out a white lighting change. You can see on that platform there, there's quite a different lighting treatment to the, the lighting on the platforms on the other side. Um, and we really questioned whether this was something that would or would not impact on passengers and whether this would be po positive or negative. The standard for the lighting was chosen because it was a bit brighter than the TFL, Transport for London lighting standard. Um, there wasn't a lot of science in it. Uh, but we had this great opportunity because they trialled it by um, putting it on one platform. So me and the team were able to get down to the station and actually interrogate whether there was a difference in how that impacted on how people were experiencing the station. Um, we didn't go and ask people if they liked the lighting, but we did take down a mood board and ask people which image they, which image most uh, best reflected their mood and how they felt on those platforms. So we were able to go to the current lighting uh, platforms and then also the new lighting. Now, being part of the test, I walked away thinking there was, there was no difference. Like, you know, people were pretty similar. Public sentiment was pretty similar. Uh, and then, amazingly, when we actually went through and broke down people's responses to our questions and ordered it, we found, in fact, that the positive sentiment dropped from 78% uh, on platforms with current lighting to only 50 on the platform with the new lighting. And we were quite blown away because that is a difference. We didn't really know what to do <laughs> with this information um, because we'd kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that there was no difference. Uh, and how do we stop the juggernaut of engineers just rolling on and rolling that out? Uh, we've been lucky enough to have a wonderful project team and a group of engineers who have come along an amazing journey with us. And they decided that it was probably a good idea to get their lighting consultant, this um, expert who works at RMIT in, the, in Melbourne, to come along and talk about why their choice was the best choice. He did come along and he said he agreed with us and that he never thought that that standard they'd chosen was very good anyway. Uh, so anyway, we, we went from there, we went through some more testing. We now have a different lighting um, solution going forward. It's a change from the current, but it's one that everybody on the project team, uh, us and the engineers, feel really confident in about uh, promoting a really good feeling down at the station. How am I going for time? Doing fine? A few minutes? Okay. Because I think I'm pretty much finished now. So this is something that's been bothering me. I, I don't actually have an ending to this presentation. <laughs> um, but I do know why I'm here. Um, and that was to share my story ab about being a 
transport planner and having an adoption of this place-making approach to urban planning and transport issues. And I wanted to share those similarities with this great community of people who have a really similar and parallel approach. I've been blown away being able to work with my colleagues who do this stuff. And I just am really keen to keep learning from this community. And also call out to you guys who might be really kind of online um, focused that there's these parallels in the built world, the physical world that we could really share from each other and, and make something really wonderful. So thank you very much. Great stuff. Thank you, Kate. Um, we've got time for a few questions. So oh, that's easy. I like it when they're at the front. I don't have to go far. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. That was fantastic. Um, maybe this is too specific, but I always think on the southern end of the station where you, they built the, um, the Arbery, yep. and it's a hugely successful cafe, at least from the outside viewpoint, why on earth wasn't it open to the station as well? Is, is that a political reason? Uh, because of selling alcohol. Yeah. And, and selling alcohol in rural environments is, yeah. Having drunk people on platforms. Yeah. What's wrong with that? What could go wrong <laughs> Thank you um, very much for being so honest Thank and you. open throughout your presentation. I'm really curious as to seeing the next stages evolve. Are you looking to um, have an online space where you will be sharing your developments as you go, or is there a way to keep keep seeing how this stuff is going? Yeah, look, there is an online portal at the moment. The project has just moved into prelim design, so we got through a whole lot of conceptual issues um, and now we can really tease out how do you design to make that outcome happen. Um, I'm happy to say that just in the last 24 hours um, the Minister's office has agreed to us setting up a project reference group with community stakeholders to really get um, people involved in that decision making or, and understanding the decision making and that co-design elements of placemaking. Um, so that is another thing that's going to be happening. But there are project updates online um, as well as at that wonderful info wall um, down at the station. <laughs> Just can't charge your phone. Thank you. Um, that was a great talk and great insight into what's been happening. And I remember that photo in that open space. And I remember when it got filled with a box in the middle to talk about Mikey. And it was just, it was the cross path for everything. And then everybody had to fish around it. Um, but more my question is your place wheel. How adaptable is that for, say, other people to use? Or is it something unique to Flinders Street? Yeah, and I'll go, I'll go back to the place wheel. Um, no, we adapted it from these guys called Projects for Public Spaces. So, and I didn't say this, it's really important. Um, we pretty much lift and shifted the project for public spaces to centre rings, so the quadrants and then those aspirational outcomes. Uh, we changed uh, some of the aspirational outcomes slightly. And then the outer ring is actually specific measures by which you might want to measure these quadrants um, and outcomes. So, for example, uh, in terms of equitable and friendly, uh, one of our specific measures for this project is an increase of elderly young and young children using the station. So that's very this station specific because we know that that's an element that um, isn't going that well for the station. Or it's not that it's not going that well, but that's a really good indicator that we've made the safe 
the place feel more friendly and the like. So it's very adaptable and I'd encourage anyone to use it. And sorry to talk about Ash's presentation yesterday, but when Ash talked about setting emotional requirements, that really spoke to me because essentially that's what this did. Um, and I think you could probably set, uh, adapt it um, and apply it to something that's not place specific as well. Um, I actually have like three questions, but I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to restrain myself and just ask one. Um, will your team be looking at um, the displays that are on the concourse and on the platforms that show which trains are coming where and how to find them? Because, I, you know, as a user of one, um, I find those really problematic for a sense of place there. Yeah, yes. Um, we are. So I, I kind of hinted before, there's a whole wayfinding piece that my team's um, been able to do, which has blown me away um, in, re in relation to this. And the screens, um, the, the whole wayfinding concept has actually really been challenged and shifted and evolved into something really quite amazing. It, it's not different from best practice around the world, but I'm really clear that it takes it to another level and is, is going to blow everyone away. Um, it's still under development. With, there's still a lot of refinement to, to be done, but I'd really hope that a colleague of mine, Carolina, might be able to present that at another conference because it's exceptional work. And it was done through an iteration process of a, a life-size life train station prototype, um, getting 100 people down, testing how they find their way around a station and, and iterations of... Um, yeah, wayfinding design. So that's another piece of work. So we'll hopefully share that with you soon. Hi there. I'm getting the wind up by the uh, MC, so I'll make this quick. Um, <laughs> the heat map you showed earlier yeah. on, uh, obviously they were colour coded. Were they related to a particular persona, or and on that, did you come up with personas and split up the demographics, or is that what your place really is? Um, so that's an interesting question to answer the first one around the heat map. That is actually capacity. So that's numbers of people. Red means too many people, basically. Green means we're doing okay, we've got, a, got enough space. It's based on uh, traditional tra uh, transport planning, town planning um, model and um, comfort level scale, which is called Fruin's level of service. So it basically looks at how many people per square metre is okay and, and rates at A to F. So in terms of that, we do have a problem down there, absolutely. Um, in terms of personas, no, we haven't got into personas per se. The wayfinding work does look at the different mindsets um, of how people are as they are travelling on public transport, and that's been really useful. The other element to this within the station environment is a lot about uh, mobility ability. So the station was built... A very long time ago, um, a lot of elements are not um, compliant. It, it, it is an inaccessible place for a lot of people um, and in different parts. So the heritage listing and those um, needs are another really big challenge that we're, we're needing to work through. And I think that's probably a bit more where we're looking at the different types of demographics, um, but certainly with the intention and aspiration to make it more accessible to more people if that answers your question. Thanks. Hi, Kate. Hey. Thanks. That was great. Um, 
quick question. Did you get any feedback from people who like the shabby experience? Um, like, personally, I love the do not spit signs and the, and the oh, pointy yeah. fingers. No, I absolutely love the no spit signs. Follow me on Twitter. That's my little picture, actually. Um, but the leaking of the tiles is actually at the point of not only being a heritage problem for the, the space, but it, it's not a, a conducive environment for human well-being, you know, that's, that water egress is a problem, like, needs to be addressed. Uh, and then beyond that, there is a tension, um, definitely, around improving places and what that means for access in a different type of way and community conflict and how changing a place might see people who are regular users of that place actually starting to feel excluded. So this is a really a big political element of um, placemaking. And I guess that was what I was calling out on not talking about today, just because that's a whole other element. Um, but no, you're the first person who's actually told me that you like the shabby. Um, and that's a really important um, voice. So thank you. <laughs> Um, hey, Kate. So first thing I'd like to do is to thank you because everybody here uses public transport in Victoria and I know how hard it would be to try and change that. So I can see up there um, Jane Jacobs is one of your heroes. You are being a modern day and your team is being modern day Jane Jacobs. So I think oh I'd just like to actually thank, thank you for trying because even Love if you it. fail, you're the people who are trying. So, um, But my, my question is actually about how uh, it's not a not about the work, what you found for customers, but you, you alluded to a, a few times that um, about the engineers that you have to work with and try and convince. Yeah. And I understand that organisation used to work in industrial environments myself. It's really hard to influence those yeah. people. So if you could share maybe a, a thing that you tried and worked and also maybe a thing you tried and totally did not work for yeah. trying to influence um, those very engineering types. Yeah. And I guess uh, that white lighting example is one that worked. And what worked about it was consistently being really positive and loving them. Like, we never said, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're crazy. It was like, oh, awesome. You've created an opportunity for us to go down and test. Awesome. And they're like, it's the week before Christmas. And we're like, yeah, awesome. Let's go down at 10 o'clock at night and test that. And we did. And the fact that we did it, the fact that we documented it and articulated it, that they just had to embrace it. Like, the fact that we were that crazy and that passionate to go out literally on the 21st of December at 10 o'clock at night and talk to people sort of just shocked them. So it's, in some ways, not the answer you want because I'm saying just work harder, but um, and I'm not. But, but, but do put in that effort and also just keep loving people because, you know, creating a space that's not around conflict... It means that we're, it's easier to go on their journey with them to see why what we're talking about makes sense. Um, those same engineers, the example of that PowerPoint, still not reinstated. It, every day it gets ripped even more. So that's an example of where if we just haven't changed that mindset. Um, I'm convinced we'll get there. I'm going to keep trying. I send the guy texts every day. Hey. Here it is again. <laughs> People love that PowerPoint, may I? Hopefully. <laughs> Great, no, thanks. Was, uh, and thanks for asking Thank us and answering the most questions, I think, of anyone. So, um, yeah, big round of applause for Kate, and we'll have a quick turnaround, and then we'll be back again. <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.